Hey gang, welcome to the Gill Athletics Connections podcast, the show that brings you the men and women of track and field and explores their unique stories. The show is brought to you by Gill Athletics. Head on over to gillathletics.com to find all your track and field equipment needs. I'm your host, Mike Cunningham, National Sales Manager for Gill. In this episode, our guest is Kaba Tolbert, Associate Head Coach, Women's Sprints and Horizontals Jumps Coach at Harvard, Harvard University. Now, if you haven't listened, this is his second time. So if you haven't listened to his first time, I want you to pause right now Go download episode five. That's when we first got to talk with Kaba in January of this year. Feels like forever ago. Uh, we were in Boston, so we got to sit down face to face. It was amazing. However, he was busy, so he had to go after about an hour. So we only got halfway through. So this is a continuation of episode five. You get more benefit, I think, if you'll go back and listen to episode five. And if you haven't listened to it in a while, so maybe you heard it way back in March or so, go listen to it again, and then come back. I'll wait. I'll, I'll wait right here for you. Okay, you're back. That's awesome. So uh, sat down with Kaba. We picked up where we left off from episode number five, had a great time catching up and talking about just the different aspects of coaching and what he's learned as a head coach, what he learned going uh, first big division one job and now at Harvard University. Uh, we also talk about just what's going on in the world today with uh, race and race relations and racial injustice. Uh, I think this is going to be a valuable conversation to help people uh, all, all around. So that's the goal for sure to to do that. So, hey, let's get to it. Without further ado, please help me welcome the wise, the wonderful Kava Tolbert. All right. Thanks again for joining us once again on the Gill Athletics Connections podcast. I am so happy uh, that our guest kept his word. We talked to Kava Tolbert back in January 30th of 2020. That seems forever ago, but also seems like yesterday. I remember it like yesterday. So help me welcome back Kava Tolbert from Harvard University. Kava, how are you? I'm doing good. I'm happy to to be on this and enjoyed some of the, some of the other um, conversations I've heard you have. And um you know, obviously, like you said, January seems like years ago, given what changed. If someone had said, if you, we and I had a conversation, said, hey, guess what? In July, this is going to be the state of affairs. I'm like, you're crazy. But you wouldn't have been in, you know. So this is where we're at and happy to, you know, uh, be here and have this, have this dialogue. Yeah, I think I was in, t- I didn't say for the meet, but I think it was the weekend you and Boston University had a meet on Friday and Saturday or something. I think it was that yeah, weekend. Yeah, we, we were hosting Crimson Lee and they were doing Scarlet and White and we were in the middle of the indoor season. Yeah, I had a blast. I thought that was going to be the high times. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Yeah, right. Uh, had a blast. Uh, actually sat down with two of your teammates as well. Mark Mangiacotti, good friend of mine for a long time, uh, and Brenner Abbott. So uh, what, if you haven't listened to part one with Kaba and actually the whole Harvard crew, it was really interesting to, to interview all three in a row there. Uh, pause right now. Go back. It's episode five for Kaba. You will, um, we're going to pick up right where we left off. So you'll, uh, you'll enjoy that. Uh, so let's Pick up where we left off. When we last spoke, we got uh, to right around, you were leaving McKendry to go to Syracuse. I believe maybe Carol Smith-Gilbert had put in a good word. Pick us yeah. up in there and how that happened. So so Carol called me. I was at Nationals. Um, just had to finish, finish Nationals with McKendry. Uh, we were in Canada uh, at Simon Fraser University. And I had a bunch of athletes staying over afterward to compete in the Harry Jerome uh, Classic Meet. Um, so we were going to be there maybe a week longer, 10 days longer. I can't remember the exact time frame, but I probably had mm, six athletes saying something like that. So Carol calls me, says, hey, 
you know, I'm at national. She says, she says she's at NCAAs and that she had um, talked to Andy Roberts, who was the head coach of Syracuse. She said she had talked to Gary Winkler and that Gary had talked to Dan, talked talk to Andy on my behalf. And that she had talked to Dan Paff and that Dan had talked to Andy on my behalf and that Andy was very interested and wanted me to, to, to get a hold of him and send him, send him my, my materials. And so I did right away. I reached out to Andy. He, he and I spoke. Um, that was, you know, late May, early June. Um, I got back to um, like back to Lebanon, Illinois, and I um, talked to him a little more. I got a call from the associate athletic director, Janet Kittle, and she, so she calls me and she says, hey, before we bring you out, you know, I want to let you know that it pays this much, $37,000. I want to make sure that would be okay with you, you know, and I was like, oh, yeah, that'll be okay. And, and I was making like 36000 at the time, so thirty seven seemed like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> so we get the phone, and I'm like, I run around my apartment, like, I might make 37000 What? Like, you? I hit the jackpot. So it was, it was funny because she was like, I want to make sure that's okay. I was like, okay. You're like, like I'll make it work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know. So um, they ended up flying me out uh, a couple of days later, um, offered me the job that day. And I flew back that afternoon, that evening. And the next day I went, I left for a meet in, in Hawaii uh, with a couple of kids that I was coaching. I had a, thing, a meet called the Maui Invitational. And um, they, the old track and field list that used to be run through the University of Oregon that everybody was on, um, the meet director had put something on saying they were looking for elite, emerging elite type athletes. <clears throat> I'd had some good people. And so I, I said, hey, I've got these people. Would you be interested? They flew us out. They put us up. Um, I reached out to, to Carol. And I reached out to Curtis about athletes they were coaching. They flew their people out. So um, it, was, it was a great, like, four or five days out there. Now, you and just mentioned. I've been to 46 states because of track and field um, in my life. And that's how I got to Hawaii. You, you said 46? Yeah, I'm missing four states that I haven't been to. Yeah, what are the four? Uh, Alaska, right. Wyoming, West Virginia, and South Dakota. Huh. You got to change that, man. We got to, you know, I'm a collector at heart. You got to collect all 50. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you mentioned a real interesting part of track and field that I don't, I know no one younger than us knows about this. You mm. mentioned the, the Oregon, uh, what was it called? The duck board? The TNF listserv. Yeah. TNF list server. I remember <clears throat> being, when I was an undergrad coach at Troy, going to figure out where the computers are because they weren't like they are today where they're yeah. everywhere. Logging right. on, getting the green on black <clears throat> text, getting all, it was all the emails basically just paste and copy together. So you'd get yeah. an email from Cava saying da, 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 and then an email from someone else. Da, da, da. Yeah. That was like, people have no idea what we had to go through back then. But, so there's two things I tell people like one is, so that was, was how you stayed informed. Yes. Because there were people who was all over the world. It was, you know, just you send an email to the list that goes through and if there was a meet going on in Zurich or a meet going on in Lausanne or a meet going on in Texas, and that's how you got results, you know, within 24 to 40 hours. Back then, you know, mid nineties, late nineties to two thousands, um, until the, until meet started really putting out results on websites, that's how you got results. Meetings, mm -hmm. you know, who, you know, sometimes USA Today, if it was a really big meet, like, a, you know, then it was a golden four and then the Canada Diamond League, all that. But like, um, if it wasn't the top three, you might not know who got fourth or fifth. You know, so the, that was how you find out what happened. And back then, for a number of years, you had one eight hundred ninety four track. You know, and you'd call in and Vic. Holden, oh, I didn't know this. This is like about ninety four, ninety five ish for about four or five years. You'd call up, and Vic would um 
he'd call a race, you know, like it might be um, Niangabu, it might be um, the Danish slash Kenyan 800 meter guy, um, Kipkatu, Wilson Kipkatu. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so and so, and they're off, and you know, uh, they went doing 50.1 and coming down the home stretch, and he narrated another race, like 100. And he would, on a, on a big meet day, he might have two or three callings. And so he'd call him maybe at four. He'd say, I have another update in an hour and a half. And, and that's how you find out what happened because. And this is a 1 800 number? Yeah, 1 800 94 track. So it was, it was free to do this. It was free. Oh, yeah. I had to get blown up, man. Of course, yeah. you, you couldn't even tell a lot of people about it. That's the, that's the problem. We couldn't right. have gone but online. But they, they would advertise in track and field news and stuff ah. like that. I mean, that's how you find out day you know, immediate results. And then, you know, that in the listserv, you get full results later. But it, it was like, man, like that was it, you know, because, you know, for me, it came on TV, it might come on on the weekend, you know, if it happened on Tuesday or Wednesday. And then you might get, you know, you might see the results. You know, you would wait for track and field news to come out to find out what happened. Like not last week, like last month. And you're like, oh, that's what happened. And so that's, you know, that yeah, those no were the ways we did it. Yeah. No Facebook, no. <laughs> I remember it, it caught on to me pretty early <clears throat> that content was really important. So even when I was at Troy, you know, we weren't hosting big meets by any means, but we'd have every once in a while a pretty good kid competed mm -hmm. on our team so, so even little old Troy I would after every one of our meets I would go on the you know send it to the listserv who got first second third in their time right. things like that because I just knew it was like oh people content content right. content yeah that's amazing man that that just really brings me back when you said the the duck listserv man that's uh, yeah there's that and then like you know track wire you know people you know the track wire thing was a big deal like you know we wouldn't find out what happened in division one you know, every week you would get a fax Right, right. You could get it in the mail, you could get a fax. And they'd put like, oh, they have their rankings and they'd have, you know, what had the big news that happened. Like, it was very old school, you know, and that, and that was new school for them, but it was very old school compared to what we, you know, if a meet happens and we don't know within a minute what happened, we're in arms. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Me included. You know? Well, so we learned in back in January, you're from, um, I'm going to get it messed up because I'm not from New York, the Bronx or? The Bronx, Co-op City in the Bronx. Okay. Uh, a subsection of the Bronx. Got it. So <clears throat> you get the job at Syracuse. Did you grow up a, I don't know how college athletics necessarily works in New York. Did you grow up a Syracuse fan? Was this a big deal in that sense? Um, no, I wasn't a huge Syracuse fan. I didn't really have a college team mm -hmm. when I was growing up. But, um, you know, you know about them because, you know, the big time basketball and right. State and things like that. Um, so it was cool. You know, it was my first Division One job. You know, and amongst Division One jobs, um, it's probably the most high-profile school in terms of like Power Five-ish. That wasn't a thing back then, but like you know, they were the Big East, and the Big East was a big deal in football and in basketball, especially, and and, and in cross country and distance, the Big East was a big deal too. So it was like my first. It was like a big-time job to me. You know, be like I had never gone to a football game with fifty thousand people before. Never been to a basketball game with thirty thousand people. It was, you know, and it was cool. Was wait, cool. wait, you didn't have that at McKendry? No. <laughs> Did you ever have fifty thousand people? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, was. Right. Uh, so, what was it like going? Uh, I'm gonna say back home, but Syracuse is still far from where you grew New York, up. Yeah, right? I mean, it was e much easier to get home for vacation. Sure. You know, but it was really cool. Um, a big learning curve, um, you know, recruiting was very different. You know, you, in some ways it was the same. You get on the phone call and you're emailing, but the people who are answering your calls and calling you back all of a sudden is tremendously different. Um, you know, Syracuse is a, is a very good academic institution. So the types of kids I, could, I, I had to recruit were different. Um, 
but we you know Syracuse had an international reach, it had a nationwide reach. And so I was able to get a, a several really good recruits in my first year. And um, we had very good facilities, you know, two, we had an indoor track, an outdoor track. We had actually had a second indoor track, the carrier dome that we never used except for Big East championships. Mm -hmm. Big East indoor every year that I was there. And so we'd practice at Manly Fieldhouse and we'd host regular season meets at Manly Fieldhouse, where we do the, the Big East at the carrier dome. And I competed in both in high school because Syracuse used to host the high school national meet. And the prelims for the 200 and the 400 were always at the Manly Fieldhouse on the Saturday. And then the final day of everything was at the Carrier Dome. That's kind of cool. That is yes, kind of coming back, back home. in yeah. 89, 90. Wow. You know? so, um, so it was great. I mean, we had, we had a budget. We traveled. We'd go, play, we'd go to Miami for spring break every year. And with the team, you know, we'd travel to California. You know, just we'd go to Houston. There were, remember, there were one week, one series of weeks where we went like Miami for a week, came back, went to Houston for me, came back, went to Houston again, came back, went to like uh, North Carolina. So like there were weeks, there was like times where I was like, shoot, I'm spending four days on the road. I was by myself and everything. And um, I felt like, why am I paying rent? But it was, it was great. You know, learned a lot and, and was able to coach some good athletes, have impact on people and, and just, um, you know, on, I never, I'd never coached division one. So it was my first experience. And um, that was really cool. Was it, always a goal to get division one or did that not matter you were just wanting to get to wherever the place you would be best at no it was a goal but part of it is because you know when you're young and when you go to certain oh, division one division one and i've been in division one since then so i haven't left but i think everyone myself included things oh division one is it you know and that's where you get paid the big bucks and that's where you have this and Division one is this, you know, it's, 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 it's small schools and big schools and schools and big conferences that are supported and big schools and big conferences that aren't supported and everything in between, <clears throat> you know, so now I've coached Syracuse. I've coached um, at Portland State University um, as head coach. I was at UTEP and Harvard. So, you know, mid majors, three mid majors and one major, and they're all extremely different. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I friends that coach you know, at various division one schools as assistants and head coaches and associates and GAs and everything. And like, you know, it's not a monolith, you know, it, you know and it, you can see that even through the, through this pandemic, like with schools, the, the decisions that schools are having to make because of their, um, their climate, their resources, mm -hmm. their everything. And so division one is extremely diverse. Yeah. You, I think when you're young, you think, Oh, division one, I'm going to hit the jackpot. It's like, eh, you know, it's not bad, and I've, I've stayed in it, but also it's um, the other thing about Division One is that it's a different lifestyle. So I had, I had gone to D3, did grad school D3 and NAIA, and I'll back up a little bit. So, um, and I'm not, I'm not saying this to diminish at all D3, but it's a different lifestyle. Like your summers are more your own in D3. Mm -hmm. Like I haven't had a summer off since I've been in D1, whereas I had basically, basically had summers off when I was in D3 and NAIA. Not that I didn't do any work, but the, the amount of work that needed to be done at that time and the amount of work that was expected at that time is 85% less, you know? And I think that um, that's the culture of those types of institutions too. So again, I'm not saying that we didn't do work in that D3 and NAI people don't work hard because that would be a complete lie, but the summers have a different rhythm to them in, in those divisions to me. Yeah, and by rhythm, you almost mean not at all. And what I mean by that is, you know, once you do NCAAs, and if you have anybody go into USAs, uh, you turn around, it's July 1, there starts recruiting, in a normal year, by the way, not right, just, right. fortunately, but uh, if you do any kind of camp, 
right. man, there, there goes, uh, well, a week of the actual camp, but months of right. planning. Uh, and then again, you blink and the kids are back on campus and it's right. season right. fall training. It is, it really does amaze me. And the recruiting is different. Like, you know, international travel for recruiting, you have to make international teams. So, you know, I've had a, you know, I was fortunate and I say that for real, like, you know, having your season extended and going to July, August is, is fortunate as a coach. It creates challenges and difficulties, but that means you were fortunate enough to have an athlete that can make a team or make it to that point and you get to either travel with them or see them compete or coach them. You know, are there some headaches involved? Sure, but you know, they're unique opportunities for you and the athlete. But I had one season where um, Pan Am Juniors were in Medellin, Colombia. Uh, they were at the end of August. Um, I had two kids on the team. I had a girl, a young woman who was a freshman and a young woman that was coming in. I had Autumn Franklin and Jade Miller. Autumn was gonna be a sophomore, Jade was gonna be a freshman. So move-in day for the freshman was the day after the meet. So Jade flew from Medellin to Harvard to move in. Autumn went back home, but like I flew back, it was at Harvard on move-in day. Um, and then like one year with, with Gabby in 2018, um, she was going to the Diamond League final in Brussels. And um, we left on, on whatever the Harvard move-in day for the freshman was. Um, they moved in, I you know, got to meet people, family, say hello, help that. And we flew out that afternoon. And her season ended like August 31st, September 1st, September 2nd, something like that. And so like, you know, those are fortunate things. You know, I got to travel and, you know, see the world again because of track and field, because of what the athletes were able to accomplish and do. But I mean, yeah, it, it's, it's different. Every, every once in a while at NCAA Outdoors, I'll be talking to a coach. I will, I will not drop any names on this one. <laughs> They'll say something like, you know, how's it going? Like, oh, you know, it's middle of June or whatever, I'm, I'm ready to, I'm ready for some time off. And I remind them, I was like, well, you know, it's, it's your fault you're here. Like you coach the kids here. Yeah, yeah, 100%, 100%. <laughs> so let's stay at Syracuse. You were yeah. the head coach of Roberts. Um, I unfortunately never got to meet Andy. However, his stature, like he, like he was around forever and did a lot of good things. How was it working for a guy like that? Um, it was, it was mostly good. Um, there were some challenges and, and, I would say that, um, you know, one, he gave me my shot in division one and, 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 and that let me coach and recruit. And I was a recruiting coordinator and I was a Jumps in the Maltese coach, but we spent a lot of time together and we talk. His office was right across the hall from mine and, um, you know, lots of mentorship. And, you know, we didn't see eye to eye on everything and, and that's okay. But like, despite some of the difficulties, it's, it's a very valuable and worthwhile experience and I wouldn't trade it because I wouldn't be where I'm at today if it weren't for that experience and those times and the opportunities and things I learned. But, um, you know, we had a lot of fun times. You know, there was a lot of, a lot of cool times that were really frustrating and annoying. And, you know, I've talked to Andy Roberts, um, you know, several times in the last decade. And um, what, I, what, I, what I would say is that, you know, everyone's on a journey. And I think that even some of the difficulties he and I had were because of the journey he was on. And I don't say any level of, of disrespect at all. Just like, you know, I think he's at a place in his life now where, you know, he has some more inner peace, you know, that maybe he might approach some things differently. And I have, and even now, you know, 20 years, 20 years later, 17 years later, having, having left Syracuse, I have a different perspective. I remember when I left there to go to Portland State and was the head coach at Portland State, I remember sitting in my office being like, oh, that's why he wanted me to do this. And it wasn't even that I thought that he was, it wasn't even that I thought he was right. What he asked me to do is like, I understand why he was saying, go check with compliance on this or go check with on this. Because, you know, when you're in charge, you don't want your assistant to do something that's going to get you on the hot seat. So there were things that I understood later um, 
that you know why things were a certain way with him um, that I didn't understand at the time. So um, you know, I, I look back and, and and feel very fortunate and feel you know maybe blessed that I had the opportunity and it paved the way for a lot of things. And he was he was supportive in a lot of things in a lot of ways of me and of my um, desires. And he was respectful. And like I said, we had our things we disagreed about and, and, and couldn't see eye to eye. But all in all, I think it was a very positive experience. You had mentioned, you know, going from uh, D3 NAIA and then you get to D1 and there's, before you get to D1, there's these, um, you think it's going to be one way and then you get there and maybe it's a different way. Talk to us about, you go from Syracuse to Portland State and a lot of us think about coaches, we think about, oh man, if I was the head coach, it would, I would do X and Y and Z and I would, right. this would be wrong. I can't believe we don't do it this way. Yeah. What was it like? You get, you, you're, you're the big cheese, you're in the big seat. How yeah, you learn pretty fast that um, the person you thought was very flawed, that was your boss maybe, that you're like, oh, they make sense on, on certain issues. Or that you understand, like, you know, you have to interface and interact with administrators and alumni and student athletes and parents and high school coaches and club coaches, like, in a different way as an assistant than a head coach. And you're like, oh, I get it. And you might still feel like, okay, I want to do it this way, but maybe the way you're thinking that you want to do it is not quite as easy as it looked from the other side and from the assistant coach's chair. And so, you know, um, I'm reasonably opinionated as people that know me and I have strong views on things. Um, but I also understood very, I learned very quickly because my first year as head coach was, was, I was, a, I was a failure. I was, I was, I had a thousand missteps. Well, okay. Now hold on. So, cause now you can look back, you have the, the wisdom of experience. Right. What makes you say that you were a failure? That's those are strong. Words Administratively, I was poor. Um, I wasn't good administratively because of paperwork and, and getting it and for the whole program. Um, I wasn't very good at um, communicating with the whole team, various things that needed to be communicated regularly or in, or um, I wasn't clear in all my communication um, with my team in a way that was um, helpful. Um, those are probably the two biggest things. And then the other thing is that sometimes you want to get things right. Um, meaning like, you know, you might talk to your sports supervisor or administrators about various things and hell yeah, they say that's okay. But, you know, we had some things, we had some stuff hit the fan my first year at Portland State and things that I had agreed with my sports supervisors on. Um, I, I won't say they, for, they were forgetful, but they, there, was no, there was no paper trail to say there were certain things that um, were alleged that I was like, I talked to you about this, you said this, and they agreed that we had talked about it, but they weren't quite sure that the what we did was what we concluded. And and I'm not throwing them under the bus. There, there was some, I had, a, I had a coach that I had to let go. And because of that, that coach alleged some things and it created havoc. And the other thing you learn as being a head coach is too, is that, yeah, you're in charge of your program, but it, the whole, you know, like, so be, because that coach alleged some things, you know, got to like the presidential level, you know, and the president was telling the AD like, look, so there were certain things I couldn't even say to people that were asking questions, but hey, what happened? Or can you tell I like things, things that would have, I don't say cleared me, but things that would have painted things in a different light because we weren't trying to avoid litigation. So they were like, don't comment, don't say anything, you know, re refer comments to this person. And so certain things looked a certain way in the press that were not at all true. And my AD and them knew it wasn't true. So I mean, they had, they had my back in that regard, like they were gonna ride with me, but we couldn't defend ourselves and, 
and put the truth out there because we're trying to avoid litigation. And so you realize that you're really an unimportant person in the grand scheme of a university. And so, um, you know, we weathered that, survived it, and the program got better and, and things like that. So it was a, it was a very big teaching moment. Um, but, you know, I didn't know what I didn't know when I took the position. And I learned a lot. And so I was just talking with someone earlier today about head coaching. You know, I'm an associate head coach at Harvard. I'm not the head coach. But, like, whenever I have friends, and especially minority friends, but any, any friends that, that get a head coaching job, um, Bill Walsh wrote a book called Finding the Winning Edge. You want to? Do I have it? Hold on a second. If you're listening to us, you can't see this, but all, so Kiva's at home, obviously, all in the background here, uh, there must be 200 books. If you know anything about Kiva, if you go follow him on Twitter and whatnot, the guy, I thought I was a, a book reader. Kiva puts me to shame on book reading. Did, did you actually find it? It's at, the, it's at the office. Okay, I was gonna be so impressed that you got so but, many books. <laughs> but the first five chapters of that book are all about organization and by Bill Walsh, you know, who was a mastermind of the 49ers dynasty when they were really- the West Coast offense, yeah. And so I got that book and I read it after that first year. Um, Jim Vanagin is a good friend of mine. I think he might even suggested it to me. And it has so much detail about how to organize your team, how to organize your communication, things that you're in charge of that nobody tells you. You know, and Bill Walsh would, would have meetings with the secretaries about, you know, hey, we're going to make sure we do things this way. And not that, you know, you do everything in there, but it gives you a framework of you've got to have this level of organizational thought program to be successful. And that, you know, so many times you get promoted to head coach because you're a good assistant and they're really different jobs in a lot of ways. And if you don't know that, you can fail. And, you know, in, in sport, you know, um, sometimes if you fail at a job, you might not get that opportunity. And so, you know, you try to help people say, look, no disrespect, no shade. I'm not trying to say you don't know what you're doing, but this really helped me, helped me understand, helped me see some things. I wish I had read it the year before I got the head coaching job, but it was really helpful afterward. Maybe it might help you before you get started, you know, type of thing. So uh, it's, a it's finding the winning edge. It's out of print. Um, it's like $200 on Amazon, but it's a great, I mean, like it's like a $60 book that's out of print that every once in a while you can find it, but it's a, if your library has it or you can interlibrary loan or copy chapters, those first five chapters are gold. Yeah, don't get me on my library soapbox. Uh, everybody, you pay taxes for your local library. I love the library. That's one of my favorite things in the whole world, man. We, we always have 10 books for the kids and everybody. If you're using a library, you're just throwing away money. Uh, a common theme is something that you mentioned there. A common theme we have with assistant coaches who become head coaches uh, from their career is something you touched on there. You know, as an assistant coach, you're responsible for this little bubble uh, for the sprints and hurdles or the throws or whatnot. Right. And let's say you're the throw coach, you're, um, uh, you know, you're responsible for the throwers. And if the sprints and hurdles coach, their kids don't compete or they get in trouble, whatever, it's like, oh, well, head coach, that's his, his or her position. When right. you become the head coach, you're now responsible for the uh, overall, the, all the culture. You, you have to be, what, the, what happens in the throws affects you sprint coach, head coach, what happens in the jumps, distance, it, it's right. a whole, it's a magnitude that you're right. now responsible for <clears throat> the administration. Right. I mean, even just being in charge of compliance for your team, you know, you know, you got 80, 60 to 100 people depending on your school and program and making sure everyone's clear to practice, you know, everyone's clear to compete, making sure, you know, and then monitoring, you know, depending on the school that you're at, monitoring study hall, monitoring academic progress, um, all those are big deals, 
you know, and they could be you know, a job unto themselves. You know, obviously compliance has their own people and academic support has their own people. But you know, you're the you're the you're the point person. Even if you delegate it to someone on your staff, hey, you're going to be in charge of um, study hall hours and compliance. The buck still stops at you. You know, so again, I'd had experience with various aspects of different parts of the program at Syracuse and even at Smith College and other places. But it's different when like if something happens, the AD's calling you. You know, you can't say, hey, it's not, you can't say I delegated to so-and-so. They don't care. Like, they, they didn't hire them to be in charge. They hired you to be in charge of that. So That just shows another bad example that you did. Why'd you give that to that person? <laughs> yeah. Um, so understanding that the buck stops at you and that you have to have your finger in a lot of jars and you have to have good people underneath you, or not underneath you, but, you know, they work with as your assistants and with you. They have to support you, not at, from an egotistical standpoint of view, but support you so that, you know, they've got your back. And so one of the things I felt, I've always felt like you know, a good the job of an assistant is to ethically have their head coach's back. Mm. And, um, you know, support them in doing things that are, you know, off the books. So, but like, you know, if you got it, you know, you have, you have beef with your head coach, you know, strong disagreements, that's a conversation with you and your head coach. Or, you know, you kind of, you kind of um, commiserate amongst, you know, assistants kind of had to get on my nerves today. But like that's you don't get that to the athletes. You definitely don't you know not you don't bring that to the outside because you know you don't under, you don't know what they're going through. And I don't mean just personally. You don't understand the, the climate that they're dealing with and the challenges they're facing. And so that's why you know I said even about Andy Roberts, some of the, the struggles we had. I got a much better understanding when I got that head coach. Like oh I get it. You know I get why you might come in grumpy and be grumpy at nine thirty in the morning on a particular day and the day hasn't even started. Like you might have been on the phone call with with the parent. And administrator till 10 30 11 o'clock last night you know so i remember when we get back from meets and um he'd come in monday and just be kind of grumpy so i have 200 emails and you know like he he would just be upset about the number of emails he had from when he left when he came back and it's like i get it you know i understand now, you know and you know you can't reply to everybody and it's time and you just like you know, reply to this one and hey i emailed you last week it's like yeah but i got they think they're one of five and they're one of one of 300. right right I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on the spot, but I'm gonna give you right. time to think about it. That's that's the good segue. I'm, I'm gonna use her as my uh, give you time to think about it. I'm gonna put you on the spot. Okay. What are three things, and and I'll let you use one of them being reading the the book, the okay. uh, find the winning edge. What are three things you would suggest for an assistant coach that wants to be a head coach? What are three things they should do before they get the head coaching job? Now, while you're thinking of that. Um, uh, listener, if you hear in the background, if uh, you hear um, a little one crying or screaming, that is, and I'm not apologizing for this, by the way, because this is who Kava who is, and this is what we do here in the Connections. We celebrate who people are in totality. That is Princess Leia. If you listened to the first recording back in episode five, we found out how uh, Kava's kids became named. Now, no, his, his little boy's name is not Luke. Uh, but the little one is Princess Leia. So, and I own, I give you no apologies if you hear her in the background. I love that. She's the cutest little thing in the world. Uh, so you, Mr. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Listener, you just got to deal with it because we're home. We're, we're with family and that's part of life. So, okay, I, I'm done. Okay. Three things that I said you could, if you wanted to uh, have one of those three things be that book as a recommendation. What would you recommend for an assistant coach who wants to become a head coach? Um, so two things that, I, that come on right away. One is if you're thinking that you want to be a head coach, you know, part of, part of the path to that is be a really good assistant. So, you know, talk with your head coach about 
hey coach, you know, is there things that, I, not in an egotistical way, are there things I can be involved in with the program that might help you or make your job you know, easier or, th or different ways or better ways I can support you? You know, and, and most, head, most assistant coaches, and I get it, you know, thinking about, you know, how can I make my kids better, faster, stronger, throw further, whatever, and recruiting and, you know, and their group. And that's most, that's a lot of the job of the assistant. But kind of seeing how things run behind the scenes, seeing how things work in a department, you know, um, head coach um, or your supervisor, you know, finding ways to be more involved in a way that, that your head coach will support. He may say, yeah, you know, I'm really working on this project. I could use help here. Or, yeah, you know, can you help me with academic um, affairs management? Can you help me with recruiting more? Can you help me um, X, Y, Z, you know, home meet management, um, whatever. So, because the more those things that you have experience with and understand what it takes to run a home meet or what it takes to manage travel, um, you know, managing these budgets and setting up, whether it's buses or vans or planes or, you know, a lot of times when, when even athletes become coaches, they're like, wow, I never knew that it was so much. They think, you know, you just showed the practice and practice runs. It's like <laughs> how much more than what to do during the day that's not about any X's and O's at all. And I think assistant coaches have that same kind of realization when they become head coaches. It's like, oh, I didn't realize travel was going to be this or managing a budget and making sure I'm not over budget or that if I have to fundraise, you know, so depending on your program, there are going to be a lot of little things that make that program run. And the more that you can be involved with that and understand that and support your head coach, that's going to make their job easier. And they're going to make them more um, eager to support you in your path to become a head coach, but it's going to make you more qualified and it's going to make your first year that much smoother. When you go get, when you finally get that opportunity, you'll have experience with either scheduling or right. home meet management or right. budgeting. Yeah, that's cool. Right. That's and even if you don't know how to do it, you at least know, okay, this is something I need to get a handle on. Mm, um, yeah. The other thing, though, that is crucially important that's often overlooked, and, I, and I'm not saying it because I just did this course on it, is you need to have good mentors. Hmm. A lot of coaches and then head coaches fail because they don't have good mentors. You know, Tony Vini, when I was a head coach at Portland State, was a big mentor and he had just left Portland State as a head coach to become, to go back to UCLA. He had, he was a, he's a UCLA alum, so he had that opportunity. <clears throat> and he had previously been a head coach at Cal State LA, you know, DP school, and you know, he had been a head coach at Portland State just before me. And so he had experience with the people I was dealing with and the environment. And so that was, you know, he saved my butt many times. Um, and then um, people like that. So, you know, having good mentors, um, can definitely save you because you're going to make mistakes, you know, but like, it's like how fast you recover from those mistakes, how you deal with those mistakes, and then how you deal with, with challenges and difficulty. If you don't have people you can rely on, people that you can trust, and people that will give it to you straight, like, you need people that will tell you, you know, you're screwing this up. Like, like, like don't, don't, the way you're thinking about this, you need to do a complete 180 and not, because you're going to get fired if you do that, or you're going to piss these five people off for you that, and then the next time something happens, they're going to say, you got to go. And so, you know, having people that will give it to you real and raw is really important. And, you know, Tony and people like Dan and people like Boo and even Jim and those guys and, and Ron Gregg, you know, having colleagues and friends. So, you know, you have, you have mentorship from above and you have horizontal mentorship. Mm. Like you can either, you know, kind of gripe and groan with, but say, oh yeah, you're right. But this, no, okay, but you're wrong. This is the way to do it. Well, this is why you keep running the same problem. Um, so having those people, um, in your life and in your career are really important. And then as a head coach at a, at a school, if, you, if you're going to become a head coach, finding people in the department to mentor you. 
like they've been at the school they they know how the how things work i mean simple things as simple as how do i get a van you know because like the man you know the manuals they give you are this thick you know and they expect you to read them and you're not going to read them all and know it all so you know being friendly and like okay first day on the job you know what are the first three things i need to do you know and sometimes it's like oh you got to go get how to go get an id i mean like universities are bureaucratic in nature you know and so bigger one the bigger the more but so just knowing what to do and how to do it and who to ask for favors and who you know, the, you know like oh we ordered the person before me ordered 20 jerseys we need 25 this year what do we do oh so i'll go talk to someone so they, they'll, they'll probably be able to help you you know i mean those become a, those kind of things become a big deal or wait room hours or wait room access or pool access or you know so there's so much in being a head coach that, you know, like my head coach and I, we disagree on things sometimes. And sometimes I'm frustrated and annoyed, but that's just the life of an assistant some days. But I give him a lot of um, leeway in terms of like my judgment of things because I, I have an understanding of how much he's juggling, you know, and the bandwidth emotionally, physically that can take on you to where you might not be attentive, as attentive to something else that I might want, but he's got five other assistants that are all demanding of his time, attention, That's good point. energy. That um, it's tough. It's tough. And so, so, uh, those are the things I would say. And then three, read the book. Yeah, uh, read books. <laughs> read. Yeah, read. That's right. That's a good point too. <laughs> you you know, said Bill Walsh is a good person. Um, people that write on leadership, and not that they have all the answers, but like Seth Godin has a good blog. A good um. A good blog he puts out every day and that's got really good leadership advice um there's um you know habit building and team building jeff jansen has a lot of stuff on team culture and accountability and things like that like, those are good resources there, what are you what are you reading right now uh this just came in today um from fergus Connie. um and so he's holding up the book called the happiness handbook for high achievers. I love the yeah. cover. I just realized what it was. Yeah. <laughs> and so I've glanced through it and I've read other stuff by Fergus. That's really good. Um, I am reading where is it? this book. That's really good. It's called The War. War. You might not be able to see the thing. Um, about fugitive slaves and um, how that the history of fugitive slave laws in America uh, brought us to the Civil War and the compromises that were made good and bad and in between in the context. So I'm reading that. And then I'm also reading um, this book that just came out um, called Begin Again. It's about um, James Baldwin and his impact on America and his voice and um, what he contributed. And then the last one that I'm reading right now is um, this one, um, The Advice Trap. Um, be humble, stay curious, and change the way you lead. And so I'm someone that tends to like to give a lot of advice. Um, he has two books. Another one I think is called The Coaching Habit. Both of them are really good. But um, he's helping me, this book and his, his authorship's helping me to kind of reframe how I think about engagement with, with people and student athletes, parenting, you know, where I fail a lot. Um, and it's, um, it's really good. Just, just, kind of, just kind of reframing how you come at people, interface with people, um, and it's lessons I need to keep applying. So. Do you read more than one book at a time? I usually read about six to eight books at a time. Wow, I can't do that. I gotta. That, that, that doesn't mean I'm reading each every day. I might read one for a couple of days right. or, and then put it down and pick up something else. Like, but these, that, the Begin Again book I just got the other day and the Happiness Habit just came in the mail today. I'll, I'll, and the Happiness Habit is like each of the sections are like three pages. 
So that's the, you know, I might read a section or two and then put it down notes. The um, Begin Again book has, is, is you know, kind of succinct chapter, so I might pick some of that. The War Before the War I started during the pandemic and I'm almost done with it. Um, and then I'm reading some comic books and things like that. And I'm also reading this, this is, I just got this the other day. Um, it's called um, The Biggest Bluff. Um, and it's about um, patience and self-mastery and stuff like that. This guy, I'm not that far into it, but um, the people that did the reviews on the back, like um, Nate Silver and Daniel Pink and David Epstein, people and, and Gretchen Rubin, people I really respect. And so um, it got a lot of good reviews. And so, you know, I might not finish that book till November. Kind of as I feel it. And um, I, there are other books I'm reading too, like, you know, I'm going through How to Be Anti-Racist and stuff like that. And I'm like, I've started that like in the winter. I'm kind of just taking my time through it. So I kind of just pick up books as they kind of feel like I want to read some. You are, I think the word is voracious, my man. Holy cow. I have to get a book and go all the way through it. And really, I'm, I'm much better at it when I'm traveling. So when I'm in a, right, right. an airplane, I'm in an Uber, I'm in a hotel. That's when I really, so I have, 100%. Yes, yeah, so I haven't 100%. been real good. I think the last book I read was coming back from NCAAs. It was uh, Shoe Dog, uh, the um, Phil Knight story was my, oh, yeah, yeah. my last one. Yeah. Right. Just so like I'm know. behind because home life, during COVID is much different than yes. tra traveling. So I get, you know, buses to airports, airports, mm -hmm. time it meets, I would, I would read a lot. Um, my reading is probably down about 70%. Yeah. So you mentioned something interesting there and you did a, recently did a, uh, a whole course on mentorship as you were talking about mentors. And I started thinking about my coaching career and now even my, in the private sector here in the business world. At believing how important mentors are and I started thinking of coaching I was like you know what I was like I don't know if I would call them mentors but you know I grew up with Ron Grigg, Todd Lane and Chris Baptista we were all kind of the same age kind of going through the coaching I was like but wait a minute they're not older than me so and they were the same level as me so it can't be mentors but you talked about mentorship on a peer level too right right so um there's a there's a um, podcast called leave your mark podcast um and Drawing a blank on the name, but they did an episode with Stu McMillan and Dan Path and um, who's the guy in Canada? Um, I'm just drawing a blank on names right now, but it's, it's um, Scott Livingston. That is a crutch. Um, it's his podcast it's called Leave Your Mark. As you can see, it. Leave Your Mark. Okay. But it's really good. He has I mean, that episode on on with those guys on, on it's about mentorship, but he has other episodes that are really good. I mean. Okay. Yes, but like that podcast episode and the conversation I've been having with some people made me think, like, yeah, you know what? Like mentorship is an unexplored area that we don't talk a lot about in terms of coaching development and, and support. And so what I did, you know, Dan Path and Bruce Shecksteiner have been extremely um, powerful, resourceful, helpful mentors to me, along with people like Tony Vini and Tony Wells um, and a few others. Um, and so what I did was myself and Jim Bernardigan um, co-taught a course on the mentorship and lessons that we learned from Dan Path and Bruce Schechter. So mm -hmm. we did two days and we, and we covered various themes and topics and areas of enlightenment that they've given us over the last 20 plus years. And so um, it was really cool. To, and it's cool. Jim and I are very good friends. We're very close. And we both have been mentored by Dan and Boo and we've gone and visited them and hung out at meets and restaurants. And um, wanted one to honor them and to thank them, but also extol the virtues of good mentorship and the impact that it can make in your life and your career so that other people could, could one, learn some of the things we've learned, but also um, 
have that opportunity to, to, to find mentors or enrich their mentorship or be mentors to people or, or maybe both, you know? Knowing those two guys who are just giants in our industry, uh, you know, legends, if you will. Um, and we talked about this in the first episode. While I don't know Dan, I've had several conversations, but I know Boo, that was, I would have called him a mentor, uh, mine as well in coaching. I just know those two, you know, legacy is important to them. Uh, and I know it's important to them because they don't talk about it. <laughs> I mean, they let their actions grow their legacy. Seeing guys like you and Jimmy V do that kind of, of lesson to others. So you're, what you're doing is you're, you're, you're um, expounding their influence that they had over you. You're expounding that to more people. I, I know that had to be for two guys who have coached so many Olympians and All-Americans and records and things like that. That had to be one of their top proudest moments was to see people like you and Jimmy V, who I respect so much as well, uh, taking that lessons and giving it to more people. You know, that, that lifts us all up, man. That's so cool. I love that you were doing that. That's, that, that, it, it was fun. That. It, was, it was really enriching and worthwhile. And, um, I got a lot out of it, just having to put it together and be thoughtful and organized around, around the topic. So it was good. Yeah, I love that. Uh, so you go from East Coast Syracuse all the way over to Portland. Uh, where do we go next? Um, so after so Portland was um, five years as head coach, and um, Portland's a great city. I had great kids there, um, and we had a lot of success. You know, we went from being really, really bad to pretty good. You know, um, like the most points we had scored was like 30-something points, and then by the time I left, we had scored 150-something points at our conference meet. Wow. And Tony Vini had set a lot of the groundwork. So, like, he didn't – he kind of was the fertilizer – we didn't get to see the fruits of his labor because he went to UCLA, but a lot of things that I was able to do was because like they were like, when I say they were bad when I got there, they were really bad when he got there. And so he did, he did a lot of the heavy lifting for those couple of years. And then I was able to come in and make it look, make, made me look good, you know, kind of thing. And so um, had a lot of fun, um, but I, by the time I left Portland State, I was on my third athletic director and on my third or fourth sports supervisor. And the people had hired me that, you know, I was like, okay, I want to work with them in their vision. You know, they, they had been gone and um, the department was changing. And I felt like the prom some of the, the promises or ideas that I came in with and had been promised to me by the people that hired me, because they were not, I felt like those things were being broken. Uh, my budgets were being reduced, things like that. And I was like, eh, it's not for me. Like, I wasn't, in I didn't think I was going to continue to enjoy it, even though I like the kids. So I had an opportunity um, to go to UTEP. Um, Boo called me one day when I was at Junior Olympics and said, hey, what do you think about UTEP? And I was like, I don't know. You know, and he's like, well, you know, uh, Calvin's leaving to go to Miami. And would you be interested? I was like, yeah, I'd be interested. And so he called, he talked to Coach Kitchens. Coach Kitchens talked to me. And, um, you know, six weeks later, I was at UTEP. Wow, man. Yeah. And so I, was, I went from head coach to being the jumps and multis coach at UTEP. Um, and you also went from freezing cold to lots of rain to unbearable heat. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 everything was different from, you know, like a really, not, a really built up downtown in Portland um, with lots of green and public transportation to the downtown El Paso is not, everything's really spread out in El Paso. So it's not like a, it's not like a centralized area as one. Public transportation, like there's no trains or anything, just buses, and you know they, they don't really go everywhere. And then it's very brown because you're in the desert, you know. So it was like it was like shock, you know. Um, so that was UTEP when I got there, and um, UTEP was extremely different in that when I got there um, in 2008, 
um, like they hadn't offered, it was a very international program. So they hadn't offered a male US athlete in like three years when I got there. Wait, wait I'm sure I didn't hear that right. It, they hadn't offered a male US high school athlete, athlete. Yeah. in any so, event. In any event, I, I believe, I remember, like in two, I remember I was sitting in 2010 thinking like, oh man, like someone had so and so and so and so and so and so and so. We ended up by the time I left, we had offered a couple of US athletes, but Mika took over. And it wasn't that Coach Kitchens didn't want them. Like you could, it was very, very difficult to get very high caliber male US athletes to come to El Paso, Texas, to UTEP, um, because they were getting offers from you know, Texas and Texas Tech and Florida, wherever else. But internationally, Coach Kitchens had amazing connections. And, and UTEP has an amazingly rich legacy of international student athletes, Olympians and champions. Oh, yeah. Cameron and I mean, on and on and on and on. I mean, like the, um, there's too many names to, to mention. But um, so that was kind of their strategy to be successful. I mean, athletes from the Caribbean, uh, Barbados, and you know, Obadale Thompson went there. But we, we had athletes from Curacao and athletes from Nigeria and Kenya and France and um, Finland and um, I mean, all over the world. It, it was really, so when I got there in 2008, I got there after the Olympics. UTEP had the most track and field athletes at the Olympics of all U.S. universities. Really? You know, obviously, you know, yeah. So that, that's how diverse they were. That's a cool little uh, track fact. <laughs> yeah. So, wow. um, so it was very different to me. Like, you know, the recruiting budget was relatively small. We had these, these um, BlackBerry cell phones. I don't know how we did it. I don't know. Like, the, the international um, calls was, like, ridiculous. Like, like that, was, that was how we recruited, email and blackberries like i um like we did, like co um paul airing was a distance coach you know the 88 olympic champion 800 from he had gone to uva and every summer he would go to kenya and he would spend like two weeks there and he'd come back and he'd have some people for the next year and or even maybe he might set something up for the next year and Pika would always have contacts in europe and he was an NSA champion at utep in the mid 90s in the hammer throw, and he had, he was from, man, I'm drawing a blank, but he's from, he's from Europe, and he had connections, and so he was there, you know, Greece, and Hungary, and Scandinavia, I mean, always had, he always had international high-level throwers, and in the sprints and hurdles, we had people from Latvia, and we had people from um, Curacao, we had people from um, Nigeria, and on the women's side, we had a few U.S. athletes on scholarship, so that was a little bit different. Um, maybe a third of that, but like, um, yeah, it was very international, very different, recruiting, um, lots of transfers, you know, people were transferred from four-year four year universities overseas to, to El Paso. <laughs> that had to be with people from a, literally around the world, it had to be a really um, educational time for you, learning different uh, cultures and even languages and how people think about events differently in other countries. Yeah, it was, um, it was really different. Hey, baby. Mm -hmm. It was really different to even just see how the team was structured, how the team was run, because it was, it wasn't quite like a hired gun mentality, you know, if you're, but it was more, we're going to, it was more of a mentality, we're going to find good people, we're going to coach them, but we're going to kind of stay out of the way. And, and I'm oversimplifying by a lot, but that then we're going to, more than we're going to find people in high school and develop them, to become great, was that we're going to find really good people and develop the talent to the very to the next level, but it wasn't it wasn't the normal 
recruit a good high school kid and make him a lot better. Um, it was when I find someone that's really good and get him in and that are, uh, give him an opportunity. And that was that was how the program went. So the athletes had a lot more input into things than I'd ever been used to. I mean, um, in some things, and it, it was there was a lot more autonomy. Um, I'm not not to say they were disrespectful, but it was just it was very different. So. Um, yeah, so that, that was, it was unique. And so I got there and um, Blessing Okabari was there and she had, she had won the Olympic bronze medal that summer with Calvin. And um, she had wanted to go to Miami with Calvin. Coach Kitchens didn't release her. So she was, she was pissed off with everybody. So I got the brunt of it at first. And so oh, no. we really didn't get along for about four months. You know, like, like um, it, it, it was terrible. Um, then it worked out and it was great. <laughs> but like, um, she was a jumper. She wasn't a sprinter. And I wasn't, and I wasn't the sprints coach. I was the jumps multis coach the first two years. I became the women's sprints coach my third year, in addition to being the jumps multis coach. But um, you know, the second year, my first year there, she went to NCAs in the hundred long jump, triple jump, and the relay. But um, we were doing some testing and, and workouts in the fall. And I was like, hmm, you can sprint. And and you know what I tell people always is, you know, I did not create her talent. You know, she like I said before, I think she was second at NCAs the year before I got there, and she won an the bronze medal. Um, that's a pretty, pretty high level of achievement. What I think I did is um, allow her to see that she could become a very elite sprinter and I helped her um, use those abilities, you know. Um, and so I will take some credit for that, but in terms of talent finding and, 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 and things like that, no, she was, she was super elite when I got there. You know, I'd never coached anybody who jumped anywhere near that far. So, How many years were you there? Three years, 2008 to 2011. What was your favorite memory from, it doesn't have to necessarily be from the school, but El Paso, UTEP, what's your favorite? When you think back at your fond time there, what was the most impactful memory for you? Um, my favorite, I mean, I think, I'll tell you two things. One's gonna, one's kind of skips around your question. The first one was, before I got to UTEP at Portland State, they had given us some money to bring our team down. So, you know, I had no idea that Calvin was going to leave or anything and, Calvin, um, they invite, Calvin and Mika had invited us down and then they gave us hotels and some money. So we flew down and the whole team was there. And after the meet was over, um, the coaches kind of hung out and, you know, had some food and drinks like that. And they had um, these, you know, the, you know the, the trainer's cards to use to like, they bring, you know, water coolers out and stuff like that to me. Stuff the trainers always kind of are, are riding in at track meets. Oh, the carts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The carts. So we had a bunch of carts and Calvin and myself and my assistants and the other, other people on UTEP staff, we had um, uh, cart races around the football stadium uh, at night. <laughs> so that was kind of cool. That is cool. That is cool. <laughs> That's a great memory. Yeah. Yeah. But um, we had no, I had no idea we were going to be there. You know. <laughs> yeah. Even funnier that, yeah, the next year you're, right. you're there. <laughs> but, um, so that's one, just a, a pass on UTEP. But the other one um, is um, blessing winning NCAAs. That was um, indoor, especially because we had, it took a lot to get to that. You know, the year before, after, you know, so in 08, she wins the Olympic bronze. She's run up at NCAAs. And then the next year in 09, she goes in as the favorite in the long jump. She's, you know, rated to score high in the triple jump, rated to be very, you know, do very well in 100. And, you know, her whole, her, the president of her federation came over. The, the national meet was at, um, was it at Arkansas that year? I think so. Um, anyway, it, the meet was a disaster. She took ninth in the long, in the, ninth in the um, 
hundred. She made the final, and I think she got eighth or ninth. She took, she scored one point in the long jump, and the best event she got like a fifth triple jump. You talk about, you talk about disaster, you know. Now I think I think I can coach, and it's like, well, shoot, you took this person that was this, and you know she had done well all year, like knocked it out the park, and I thought we might, I thought she might score like twenty five points. And she can't spell. She can't score two and a half. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was like you know, the, her worst event was a triple jump, and she got fifth. And she got like eighth and eighth in the long jump in the in the hundred. It's like man. So you know, my ego took a bruising. She was she was distraught. So we get back to UTEP. We, you know, a couple of days later, we sit down and have a heart to heart. A lot of it, we realized. She, you know, she was able to express to me was she was very scared and nervous and felt felt a lot of pressure that I didn't anticipate and set her up for. And so, you know, we got back to work to get ready for the Nigerian trials and world championship that year and so on. But, so it went a lot better after that. But then now going into the next year, you know, same pressure, but she had a lot more confidence. And knowing where the, the Achilles heels were, the weak spots, had a better idea of how to prep for the championship meet. So seeing her go at Arkansas, yeah, so it was Arkansas because um, this ties into a Star Wars thing. So, you know, I kind of feel like the big failure was at Arkansas Outdoor in 2009. And to go to Alcazar Indoor in 2010 and win the 16 long jump. No women in division, no woman in division one history had ever done that. But you know, in, in Empire Strikes Back, you know, Luke has his big failure at the cave. You know, and I felt like we were going back to the same spot to resurrect ourselves. And I felt like, okay, let's go back. You know, let's let's try to try to you know build a different history. And so I always I always felt very um, appreciative and proud that we were able to go back to the same place and try it together. I always go back to, I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to our interview, our conversation with Brooks Johnson, but he said something in there that I've used it now for several of our, of our conversations with uh, other coaches. He, he talked about, if you're not in the huddle, you don't know the play. And so in what he was reflecting as when people from the outside say, oh, that athlete should be doing X or that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if I was, if I was coaching that person, I would do Y and Z, you know, you had to really you and, and blessing actually, right? You come back from right. that meet, you're at the bottom of the bottom, really. That was unexpected. Right. And other people are probably chirping like, man, look look what he did. You know, yeah, he yeah. took, you know, get Calvin back here, right? And right. you guys, you know, had your own, people from outside had no clue what was going on. You guys were able to have the talk and continue to build that trust. And eventually look what happened. I mean, right. the good news is, spoiler alert, it, it, it right. really rose up to the top. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. So uh, did you go from to Harvard? Yeah, so um, after my second year, Coach Kitchens retired. Um, Mika became, the throws coach, became the head coach. Um, so one more year at UTEP. And um, <clears throat> like many mid-majors, you know, there are budget things. And, and I was kind of unhappy with my, with my pay um, and, some, and a couple other things in the program. And also, like, I didn't feel like I fit the same way I'd felt at other places. It just, um, although I, there are certain things that I enjoyed and I think they were good people and all those things. Like, I, I just felt like, mm, I feel out of place here. Um, and, and again, like there are a lot of things I enjoyed and a lot of good people in the program and associated with the program. But the, um, a friend of mine, Brian Fetzer, um, called me um, and he said, hey, you know, what do you think about Harvard? I'm like, what do you mean? Like, tell me more. Cause you know, I knew Harvard and I'm from the East Coast. Um, I competed at Harvard when I was in high school. I went to Colby College, went to Andover Phillips Academy. So I'd been around that area a lot. We competed in Boston at Tufts and BU a lot when I was in college. Anyway, he's like, well, you know, we, and Brian was the recruiting coordinator 
as well for Harvard. He said, we, don't, we got this person coming in, this person, and this person, we're doing this and this and this. And anyone that knows Brian, Brian is eternally optimistic, you know, um, to a fault, and I love him, but you know. I was just on the phone with him yesterday, and I would yeah. agree that it's still today. <laughs> right, right. So I was like, oh, wow, okay. Because you think Harvard track and field, especially that then, you know, they've had good people and they have a legacy, but it was like, eh, why would I leave this to come there? And once he started explaining to me, I was like, oh, okay. You know, this sounds interesting. And then we talked and then I talked with the head coach and then we started the formal process. And like six weeks later, I was at Harvard, you know, kind of thing. And so I came in and um, I was the, the short sprints coach, the hurdles coach and the long jump and triple jump coach. Men and women? Say again, both men and women. Mm-hmm. And Fetzer was the long sprints coach, the Maltese coach, and the vertical jumps coach. And then Fetzer left. Um, he got a, he, he got the head coaching job at UVA, so he left at the end of the first semester. So I had been absorbed. I had all the sprints and hurdles, all the long and triple jump, and the half long. Oh. In January, we hired Brenner. And the first year, Brenner had vertical jumps, decathlon, the 800 group, and he ended up coaching um, a couple of the football guys. So that year, I think Brenner had, uh, he had an uh, uh, Ivy League champion in the men's 60, he had an Ivy League champion in the women's 800, and he had an Ivy League champion in the pole vault. That's pretty unique. Holy yeah, cow. Yeah, yeah. And Dang. so anyway, so once we got through that first year, um, then we ended up hiring Mark Rangicotti. Mark had the men's sprints and hurdles. I kept the men's horizontal dunk for a year, and then he got the men's horizontal dumps as well. So, so you, you coached all the women sprints, hurdles, and horizontals, horizontals and relays. Oh, and heptathlon. Okay. Heptathlon. Yeah. yeah, I've had to have heptathlon since my first year as well. Fetzer left. Do you coach the heptathlon as in you coach all seven events, or do you mm-hmm. have um, yeah. Darcy do the throws or anything? Or do you, you keep it all? Yeah, I kind of keep it all. I kind of mm-hmm. coach them all. So mm-hmm. We have continuity. Yeah, 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 yeah. Kind of two different ways of doing it. And right. I, I was never good enough to do that. I had, you know, like I'd maybe coach their 100 and I had nine other coaches for everything. Right, right. <laughs> so what's it like? You've been there, I think this would have been ninth season. If I nine years, coming up on year 10. Yeah. So what's it like coaching at Harvard and being in Boston? Such a great city. And, uh, you know, obviously the success you guys have had, it's been a lot of work. So what's it like there? <laughs> um, it's mostly wonderful um, and challenging. And, and, you know, most jobs are kind of like that. What I tell people is that, like, in any job, if you're happy 85, 90% of the time, that's about as good as you're going to get, you know, because every job has a challenge. And most of the time, I'm happy 85, 90% of the time, and that's what's kept me here. You know, I've had a few opportunities to do other things in other places, and there are a couple of combination of things that have kept me here. So one is that um, it's in Boston. I'm a New Yorker. I'm from the Bronx. But Boston is a pretty cool second, third city. You know, like it's got really good, like the food scene in Boston. Unbelievable. It's, it's like tremendously better. Like they make good pizza now. Boston used to have terrible pizza. They've got good pizza and lots of good restaurants and good food. Um, secondly is that there's a lot to do. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm in the music and books, you know, people that know me. And in Boston and around Boston in my time here, I've seen Stevie Wonder twice. I've seen Prince. I've seen Janet Jackson. I've seen Jay-Z three times, Maxwell, I've seen, um, uh, what's all I've seen? I've seen um, Ron, Ron Carter, a jazz artist, I've seen Michelle Pharrell, I've seen Najee, I've seen Walter Beasley, um, and on and on and on. 
um, all in or near the Boston area. And, you know, other, you know, some, some places are more where I wouldn't be able to do that. And it's usually pretty easy to get to. You know, I've gone to some Red Sox games. I've gone to see the Bruins. You know, I've gone to the Celtics game. Um, the kids, we can go like the puppet, puppet show theaters and we go to Disney on Ice and things like that. And, um, and there's a lot to do. And you can, you can be really urban or you can be really kind of in the woodsy, outdoorsy type stuff all really quickly. And so the, the, the city itself, the area um, offers me a lot. And I would say this, you know, again, as a New Yorker, like when I was younger, you know, living in Mount Pleasant, Iowa, Lebanon, Illinois, and having gone to college in Waterville, Maine, you'd be like, uh, it's nine o'clock, 10 o'clock, there's nothing to do. Or, you know, the closest thing to find, the closest thing is 30, 40, 50 minutes away, like from, from Waterville, you're going to Portland, Maine, or from Lebanon, you're trying to get to St. Louis, or from um, Mount Pleasant, you're trying to get to Iowa City. That, so like, you know, I live, I live about 20 minutes from Boston in Waltham, and, you know, I do a lot, but I'm not living the fast life. You know, I'm 48 years old. And so there's enough to do, but like, you know, I don't need stuff open until three in the morning. Like when, we used to, when I used to come to Boston when I was in college and hang out with my friends, you know, like the, the, the train station was shut down like one o'clock. If you were to come back from like, you know, being out, you'd have to catch a taxi. And I'd be like, what is this? New York, the trains run all night. What kind of city is this? But I'm not out till three in the morning. So trains stop running at one or two, no big deal to me at 48, you know? Um, so I think maybe that's why I love it so much too, because there's just way more than enough to do. And I'm not out till three anymore. <laughs> you know, and you have Uber now too, which makes it easier. But yeah, that's true. That's a good point. So that that's that's the backdrop of what makes Hard Orange Harvard so enjoyable. On top of that, you know, as we talked about in the first call, um, I have a um, education mindset background where that's really important to me, and it's a place where I feel like I can fi I fit in with with them um, that ethos and you know harvard obviously is, is tremendously um academic you know they've got a long rich and rich history of that you know as being one of the preeminent institutions in the world so the type of people that we're attracting um to to compete for us here and the people that are taking classes here um have that interest and have a high level of interest in that stuff so you know we talk a lot about track you know track is the main thing that i do at my job but with the student athletes we're talking about people like you know Cornell West and Bell Hooks and you know Angela Davis and um, politics and you know, one time I got in trouble at Portland State for talking to my team about politics. Um, someone mistook what I said and kind of twisted it. You know, I believe they twisted it on purpose. My AD, my associate AD was um, I had to make an apology to the team, and it was it was it was really frustrating because I really to my soul feel like what I said was very straightforward and not at all, you know. It wasn't that controversial, you know. What I said was sometimes, you know, sometimes I don't like white people because and someone on someone on the bus had said a female had said sometimes she doesn't like men because of sexism. I said yes, yeah, sometimes I don't like white people because of racism, and it wasn't a comment that I don't like white people at all. It was like, yeah, I have moments where it's like it's really frustrating. And my aide, my associate AD was like, well, you know, you can't say that. And I said, and I was like, anybody that was in that conversation completely understood the context, and the people that brought it to you kind of are trying to have it out for me because, you know, I I went I was very careful in the conversation I have with them to say, this is not a thing that was every day all the time. It was in context of what that person had said. And it was very clear that it wasn't a hateful type of thing, you know, and so that kind of annoyed me. But so at Harvard, you know, you can have those types of conversations um, that, you know, again, you know, you're not, you're not going to be, try to be insensitive, but, you know, there's nuance and, and there's, there's background and support for a diverse set of ideas, you know, I feel like. And so um, I enjoy that. Um, and I have kids that are sociology majors and psych majors and philosophy majors and 
economics majors and, and neuroscience and like that, you know, and um, that makes it enjoyable. That's part of what makes it enjoyable. We, uh, earlier, we had a fun little track trivia. One of my favorite track trivias is who owns what school did the athlete go to who owns the women's indoor 200 meter collegiate record because most people would guess, you know, the LSUs and Texas and Florida's whatever, but it's yeah. an athlete from Harvard. And I think that yeah. uh, we mentioned earlier, Gabby, uh, what's it like, you know, from the outside looking in, we all see Harvard, we see Harvard on, you know, Goodwill hunting and all this kind of stuff, you know, recruiting. I mean, like, is your recruiting pool just like there's 10 kids a year that you can go after because of grades? I mean, what, what's it like to recruit at Harvard? So the recruiting pool is narrow and wide. And what I would say is that it's narrow because, you know, people have to fit, have to have certain basic minimums. There is no real minimum. It's not like you have to have a 3.6 or else. But, you know, there are general guidelines of people that are going to tend to be accepted for admission at Harvard. And so even that was a surprise when I first got there. So, you know, we're looking at certain, because, you know, I'd been, a, I'd been at Smith, I'd been gone to Kobe, you know, Fetzer had come from Cal, and so he was there before me, and I was like, I was like, hey, what about this kid? He goes, no, it's not going to happen. I was, you know, like, really? He's like, yeah. He goes, hey, I go, they, they, they're pretty good. Like, you know, kids that you knew were smart enough to do the work, but weren't going to pass the admissions standard, basically. Mm -hmm. Standard very loosely, but just, you know, given the thousands and thousands and thousands of applicants, they were going to be, you know, not in the top part of the applicant pool. Um, having said that, so like Fetzer would be like, yeah, I thought the same thing when I was at Cal. I, thought, oh, I, I was at Cal, I kind of get what was at Harvard. And it gives you some understanding and insight, but it's still that next level up, you know, I would say. Um, but recruiting is unique at Harvard and schools like Harvard, I should say, because, you know, you're slicing out 90% of the population plus from the get-go. Like, As we'll say 90, you're being a little generous. <laughs> no, but, but a big swath because yes. it's just not going to happen. And so sometimes I have to have conversations with, with student athletes, families, and coaches saying, look, I understand that you can easily get into 90% of the schools in the, in the U.S. Um, it's going to be very challenging at Harvard. You know, and, 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 I, and I, I try to say it because I don't want them to think I'm being elitist or pompous. It's just saying, like, look, yes, you are very smart. You're accomplished the bar is just a little bit higher here, you know? Um, and so sometimes you gotta have those difficult conversations. So once you narrow it down to people that one, have the academic credentials and background, and two, have the athletic credentials and background, um, it, gets, it gets very small because, and I'm a, I'm a D3 student athlete, you know, I went to NESCAC school. Um, NESCAC is a very elite academic conference, um, athletic conference. So there are a lot of kids that would be superstars in NESCAC that contact us that don't quite have the athletic credentials to compete for us in a way that would be very impactful athletically. And so um, that's, that's, sometimes a, that's a tough thing too, because a lot of times people think I really get is division one light. And I tell people all the time, like we go and compete against LSU and we can even Texas and Florida and whoever else, like that's, that's our competition. Like we're trying to be the best that we can be within our parameters and given guidelines, you know? So I'm never thinking like, oh, I only have to beat Yale or Princeton. I'm trying to think, how good can I how how good can I help you become? How can I help you close the gap between where you are and what your potential is? And then, you know, what does that take? And and that's kind of been my, my MO wherever I've been, but especially at Harvard, because I don't want people to think of it as division one light. It's we're division one track and field, we're in the Ivy League, we're going to have a balanced approach to academic and athletic uh, enrichment and accomplishment, 
but it, but it's a balance. It's, it's not academics. Because people, when I first got here, especially people in my group, they would say, you know, oh, coach, I have to do this. Coach, I have this. Coach, I have this. I was like, whoa, you know, we got practice. We got this. Yeah, yeah, but academics first. And I was like, I'm pretty smart. Like, I'm not genius. You know, like, 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 like you know, I know the people like Dan and Boo are like, uber, uber smart, but I'm pretty smart. And I went to pretty good schools, you know, throughout my life. So I know what academic achievement is like. And I was like, look, yes, yeah, Harvard. I get that what it is, but like, y'all, y'all got into school. So they didn't get you, they didn't accept you because you couldn't do the work. And so I kind of had to hold people, feel like I had to hold people accountable. Like, yeah, like, you're not going to kid a kid. You know, like, I wasn't born yesterday. So like, you know, this is this, this paper that's due, you tell me you need to practice for, the professor, didn't, the professor didn't assign it to you yesterday. There's a syllabus. And they assigned it to you three weeks ago. And they said, you know, so like, this is poor planning on your part. You know, so we had to kind of have those kind of conversations. And like, if you tell me, hey, coach, three weeks from now, or two weeks from now, I got this big paper due. Um, I'm, you know, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing so and so. On that Monday, can I have a shorter practice? I, need, I think I need to have a shorter practice. You know, can I, can I, can I do practice, whatever. Can I do practice on my own? That's a much different conversation than Monday morning call, coaching this practice, da, da, da. Now, you might call me Monday morning because you didn't do what you supposed to do or something happened or whatever, and you might still miss practice, but there's probably a lecture coming as well from me, you know, some, and some frustration on my part that's going to be expressed because you can't tell me you have high-level goals and then have a disorganized life with regard to those goals. So I certainly have kids that once in a while will need to miss a practice and we've taught, you know, last Wednesday they told me that this Thursday they need to miss practice or this Friday. That's not a big deal. And that happens, you know, amongst the group relatively often. You know, I might have one kid a week that misses one practice or has to have a shortened practice, but I've got 20 people in my group. So no big deal. You know, that might happen with an athlete once or twice a semester. You know, but when I first got here, it was like, people were willy-nilly and I was like, this is for the birds. Like, we're never going to be great if we operate like this. And so, you know, we kind of got it to a point where like the people understood that like, yeah, academics are super important. Like, you know, most people in our program are never going to be, be professional athletes and that's perfectly fine, but let's not shortchange ourselves. You know, we're going to let, let's, let's, let's make, let's chase a degree that's meaningful and let's put a lot of time and energy into our academic preparation and work and be proud of it. Well, let's do the same thing on the track too. You know, and that, that's kind of my approach. And I think that's part of why we were able to turn things around and, and been able to be a high achieving group within the Ivy League, you know, and beyond. I always was impressed when I was a kid. I don't know if they still do it today, but I'd read the USA Today and they would have like the, um, the all academic uh, football team and it would be all divisions. And so I'd always, you know, go through and I would just look for the schools and, you know, I'd get to MIT or Harvard, and it would be, you know, such and such, the offensive linemen, uh, nuclear physics. And I was like, man, that's impressive, because that kid is not only studying something, you know, I could barely, I'm from Alabama, I could barely spirit, spell nuclear physics, but is also doing the time commitment for a college sport. Uh, so I, I just imagine, you know, the kids that are on your team, like, what kind of majors are they, like, are we going in and doing general studies? I don't even know if Harvard has general studies. Yeah. Uh, English, and not, and not saying yeah. anything bad about so, English, or they yeah, basically English. everything. So one of the things that that I enjoy about Harvard mostly is um because there's times where you know it's frustrating, but like kid, like the degree that people get, not just because of the name, but because of the work they put in, is meaningful here. Mm -hmm. Other places where, where kids were pushing it, were pushed into general studies, kids that want to do nursing and, and scientific things, they were pushing certain majors like oh that won't work, or pushing certain class schedules and things like that, and that was always frustrating. I don't think that kids, student athletes should just take classes 
whenever they want, however they want, never be packaged like that. That's bad for organization too. You know, there's got to be a balance to it. You know, and um, but no, we have we have people in my group and in our team that that are spread across all 48 concentrations at Harvard, from neuroscience, biology, economics, psychology, architecture, philosophy, um, English, and on and on and on. I mean, it there's never an instance we tell kids you can't do this major you can't do this concentration at Harvard um and you know what, what we do ask is that they be thoughtful in their in their course selection you know Harvard off, Harvard offers like 30 some 3,000 courses at Harvard you can take 32 so you say that look you're gonna take 32 courses you're not gonna be able to take every single one you want there's got to be a little bit of give and take at times to accommodate your desire to be a high level student athlete as well. Doesn't mean you can't take this or can't take that, but like if every time that push comes, you're always choosing things that are going to diminish your ability to function in track and field, that's problematic in the same way as if we were talking about all track and field all the time. You know, there has to be that balance to it. Well, I'm so impressed. Um, you know, it's one thing, first of all, the whole Ivy League has some tremendous athletes, but you know, Harvard seems to have, uh, like you said, you're competing against, it doesn't matter if you're, in the Ivy League, you're in the SEC, Big Ten, Pac-12, you know what, we're going to line up and our goal is to beat you. <laughs> yeah, right. uh, and, and if we don't, we'll just be your boss one day. So that's that's all good. Uh, you guys have done a, a great job there. And like I said, my favorite trivia question is all, because uh, I got to see Gabby do it too. So that was always like, I was like, holy crap, man, no one right. would have predicted this. That's just so awesome. Uh, as we start wrapping up here, something else that I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, I mentioned, you know, we first sat down in January six months later uh, we had no idea how the world was going to change and not just in sport right we didn't get our outdoor championships we didn't get an outdoor season uh, but a lot inside of culture has happened um, uh, for many many different reasons on the 28th of may you had a i think it was 30 seconds you just had a quick uh, I, I saw it on twitter i don't know if it got posted to other places but you had this emotional uh, message, uh, almost as if you were talking to yourself, to be real frank, uh, that went viral, if you will. You know, they talk about things that go viral. Uh, it, I, I looked at it again today to remind myself of it, and it's got some 30,000 views on it. So I, I'll categorize that as, yeah. as going viral. Uh, it was a real emotional, and the reason I think it went, it went viral is because it was real authentic. Okay, but it was, you know, it was real authentic. You spoke about uh, fatherhood, uh, you spoke a lot about uh, your oldest child, and it, it, 12, 12 years old. Yeah, I have, I have a daughter that's 22 as well, but he's my middle child. Oh, right. Okay, that's right. We were talking about Malcolm in this video, and just with all the things going on with uh, police brutality and, and racial injustice, uh, talk us through what, what was your, if you, if you haven't seen it, you got to go on Kava's Twitter page. If, if you're a parent, you can't I don't know how you can see a, a father talk about his child and not get emotional about it. I don't care what race, color, creed you are. Uh, I just don't know how you can as a father of two. I just, I can't, I can't fathom. Talk us through uh, what that message was, why you did it, and what you hope results will come from it. Yeah, so um, the night before I posted it, you know, I... My son Malcolm, I, I on an Instagram page, Instagram story, and he posted like Justice for Ahmad. And I was like, hmm, you know, he doesn't usually post a lot of social political stuff. He's 12, you know, on his page, and that's okay. Like, you know, it's fine. And we haven't had tons of deep discussions about that type of stuff. We, he knows he's named after Malcolm X. He, he knows that Malcolm X is, is a racial, social justice superhero. 
he understands that that black and brown people marched, died, fought, struggled for him to have the rights, privileges, and lifestyle that he has now. Um, he he has a basic understanding of things, but but he, he you know is not a deep understanding. You know that that you know I would say I have it forty eight as an adult. Um, so I was like, oh wow, and when I saw that on his page, so he was hungry and. Um, I said, hey, let's go get some food. And so we went to Burger King and we got some food. We sat in the parking lot. And I said, like, hey, I saw your page, you know, how are you feeling? And he's like, I'm okay. And, I, and, I asked how, and so we had a conversation about that. And I, what I said to him is like, you know, I want you to be safe. You know, I hadn't had the talk, you know, any black parent will tell you to talk about how to interact, interface with uh, police and, and criminal justice type system type things. You know, I said, listen, I said, I want you to be safe. And what I, what I, reason I say that is, we live in a, a mostly white middle class area, and you know, 12, 13, 14 year olds get into mischief. Like, I'm not excusing it, saying, like, you know, you might be with your friends and, hey, let's take these potato chips from the store and you run out. You're not a high level criminal. You know, you shouldn't do it, but that's, those are the types of things that people sometimes get into. And, you know, my, vantage point is that he wouldn't get the same uh, perspective as his friends possibly if, if the cops get called or they run out the store and the cops say, hey, stop. His friends might keep running. If he keeps running, that could end his life, you know? And, you know, I just, and I just said, listen, I said, if something happens and you make a mistake or you're in a situation where you're dealing with the police and, you know, and my son, is, is he, he's a little nervous, especially if he's accused of something that he hasn't done or he feels he's being unjustly accused. So even if the cops stopped and said, hey, we want to ask you some questions. You know, we saw you there or this, that, you know, anything that might happen, it would be a nervous type of experience. I get nervous getting pulled over for a speeding ticket. So, you know, a young person like him who's, who's you know, he's a preteen, he drives you crazy, but he's a very sweet soul. Um, I could see his nervousness make him shake or, or make him even possibly cry or make him interact with the police in a way that might make them feel suspicious because of the biases they bring to that interaction. And the thought of him being harmed because of that is, is terrifying to me. And so I said to him, you know, if, if you're involved with the police in any way, even if you made a mistake, if you took some chips or a cupcake or a soda or you're running with your friend, I said, be safe. I said, don't worry, because he's the kind of person that would worry about mom and dad and be really mad at me. What am I going to do? What am I going to tell him? I said, look, I'd rather deal with you and me being upset with each other and me being, you having to put you on punishment than you being dead. You know, I said, I'd rather deal with you being in trouble with mom and I than us not having you around. And that's how I strongly feel because whatever happens, whatever he, whatever he might have done, we'll get through it. But if, 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 if the police overreact, mistreat him, um, make the wrong supposition, whatever thing that could end his life, or, or, you know, there's no coming back from that. So I want him just to, you know, and, 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 I, and, I, and I'm not saying the people that have been killed and, and brutalized and mistreated have done anything to deserve it. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that at all, but I'm saying like, you don't have to do anything wrong to, as a, as a black person, a brown person, in this society to have very severe consequences or misreactions that can negatively impact your life, if not end your life. You know, like, like thinking that somebody is dead over a counterfeit $20 bill is insane, you know, and, a lot, and selling cigarettes and all those kind of things, you know, like, you know, 
is it illegal? Sure, but, but damn, like, like that shouldn't end your life, you know? You know, you know not signaling in, a, in, in traffic, that shouldn't put you in jail and you're dead three days later. So, you know, and this is, this is a biased opinion, this is a, a biased outlook, you know, in general, I'm trying to, to, to minimize my interaction, my family's interaction with the criminal justice system in any way, shape or form, because you don't want it to go sideways. And I'm not saying all police are bad and this and the other, but like, it just is, the odds are against you. And so that's that. So anyway, that was the context of the conversation we had. The next morning, I needed to do something, go get something. I was up and I couldn't sleep that night. And I said, like, I'll go do, I'll go take care of the business. I got to take care of it now. So I was driving, pull out the driveway, get about two blocks away. And I just started crying. And at first I was like, you know, like I'm not afraid to cry, but I was just like, why am I crying? And it just hit me and I was bawling. And I just recorded that as a release. And I posted it. I didn't have any expectation that it would impact anybody. It was more that I just need to release this because I'm going through it right now. And that was like at 6.30 in the morning. For the next four hours, I was crying on and off every 20 minutes, you know, and the um, outpouring, what, what I said to people, what I've said to some people is the outpouring of support and understanding and people that said they opened their eyes, people that said they, they understood or that they were an ally has been very um, impactful to me and very meaningful to me. Um, people say, hey, how you doing, how you doing? And I would say like, you know, I feel a lot better in that it's nice to know there are a lot of people out there that understand and that kind of get it and that are supportive and are trying to raise their families and their children and their, and their spheres of influence to be different. Racism didn't change in those 48, 72 hours, but the, I, the, the acknowledgement of what I was feeling and going through from people, black, white, male, female, across the world was like, wow, like, like, like you know, one, I knew I'm not alone in it and that also um, there are people working hard to dismantle white supremacy. And that's impactful. So it's not that it's dismantled or gone or that those two realities about my son have changed, but there's, there's glimmers of hope is how I feel. And, um, and that was before things really took off in terms of the, the worldwide movement about this. So it was, a, it was like a few days before because my reaction was really just to having to have that talk with him and, and, and the idea of something happening to him. And then things took off a few days after that. So... Um, that was that. That's how. That's the story behind that. Yeah, it was real impactful. I think the reason it was so impactful, uh, the 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 amount of impact it had was, it wasn't just um, a black man talking about his black son. So that there's one part I'll never know. You know, I, I don't I, for good or bad. I don't have to have that conversation <coughs> with with my kid. Mm -hmm. But it also was a father to a son. And I think moms could see that to their kids as well. That's right. where the impact, you know, as a father, it impacted right. me that, you know, another man and beyond that, it's a man that I know and I love and I trust, but another man has to feel this way about his kid that this could, I mean, I know how uh, you think about your kid. That's the right. worst thing anybody could go through, right? Is having right. to bury their own children. I just can't right. ever imagine that. And so that you have to concern yourself with that out of all the other things in this world that I want you to concern yourself with driving right. safe, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, this, like, this is, it, that's where it, for me, 
the impact was. And, you know, you read through, there's lots of people, as you mentioned, that would, that commented on there and said, Hey, I'm with you. I stand with you. I kneel with you. I see you. I validate you. I can only imagine, uh, because again, I know your network, you know, you're, you're a wild, wildly popular person that there had to be 10 X the number of people that texted you and called you, uh, to check in with you. Right. And, you know, and the people said, yeah, you know, I feel you. I've been there, you know, we're going to get through it and um it, it really helped and it, it made an impact um and um i'm not naive but i'm hopeful you know that things will continue to progress you know sooner rather than later and that the work that's being done the struggles that are being done in the protests you know um will make an impact so that you know black lives can truly matter that brown lives can truly matter and all the intersections and 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 subcategories of those because um you know, what I tell people is like, we're not asking for anything special. We just want to live. You know, we just want to live. We want to have the same opportunities and the same life outcomes that are afforded to everyone. We know, you know, you know the, um, the life, liberty, pursuit of happiness thing, I think is a, is, a, is a great thing to aspire to. We aspire to that too. You know, I'm not saying all black people think alike, but I'm saying like me as a person, me as a black man, me as a black member of my household, you know, tradition, like, I aspire to that very much. I want my children to be able to have that. And you know, you think that was 1776, we're in 2020, and we're still trying to make that a reality for a lot of different types of people, not just black and brown people, you know, gay, lesbian, trans, so on and so forth, you know. Um, but you would think it wouldn't take that long to get this figured out. I understand that there are forces working against us, but you're like, damn, that was 1776, you know, and we're in 2020. And, you know, think about my mother and my grandmother and like the struggles they had and what they fought and they marched for and, you know, and, and before them, you know, obviously, and that you think like, can't, can't we figure this out? You know, can't we decide as a people, as a country that, why, because it's not just hate, people, and that's what I'm going to say, it's not just hateful hearts and minds, it's, it's, it's the, the mechanism and the organization and the positive effects Know what I want to say? The benefits that, that um, compile and accrue from white supremacy that have to be dismantled, you know? And so changing hearts and minds is one aspect of it, but it, it's very multifaceted. It's very multi, it's very layered. It's very pervasive. And it's going and, and to take a huge effort um, to dismantle it because a lot of it operates without hate. A lot of it operates without malintent. And that, and that people are starting to understand that and that that's just as important if not more important than this and changing hearts and minds because um, the uh, policies and the structures that uphold white supremacy and that accrue the and that generate and accrue the benefits of white supremacy that have to be dismantled for people to really have um, the ability to pursue life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. To help provide value to people, that's one of my our big goals here for the podcast. Is again, it was called Connections for a reason to help connect people together and really to see how a lot of us are are the same <laughs> in some aspects. We all have our uniqueness, but we have a lot of commonalities and, and vice versa. Uh, so, two of the things that I could maybe suggest. Uh, if you're listening right now and you just want to know what are some ways that I can learn, how do I learn some of these things? If I've, if I've been in my own bubble, how do I can start? One is I would recommend, I don't know if you've seen this one or not. Have you seen, the, uh, it's on Netflix called 13. I think it's excellent. It is excellent. I, I rarely share 
on Facebook what I watch on Netflix normally because I'm just watching office reruns over and over. Uh, but that was one of it might be the only show that I've actually like shared and was like I was I was actually kind of speechless when it's all wrapped right. up. It's <clears throat> mind blowing. Right. Uh, and the other one is something you alluded to when you gave the examples of, you know, selling single cigarettes and uh, $20 counterfeits. You mentioned um, uh, um, uh, blinkers, your turn signal. Uh, mm -hmm. And I'm blanking on her name, but uh, one of the people that I have learned a lot from uh, <coughs> is a guy named Malcolm Gladwell. I, oh, I think yeah. you're fairly well-versed. Well I'm trying, I'm doing everything I can to get him on the show as well, because right. he actually was a track runner yeah, yeah. back in the day. He loves track. Uh, but Malcolm Gladwell runs a podcast called Revisionist History. My and favorite he, podcast. It, it, it's awesome, right? I love, it's incredible. I love that podcast. Um, one of the episodes he did was on the young lady who was down in Houston who got pulled. I'm, I'm, I'm actually glossing over it tremendously, but got pulled over because she didn't put a turn signal on. She didn't, in my opinion, she didn't need to turn a turn signal on. You got to go listen to it. If you just go find Revisionist History, look through the episodes. It's probably season two or season three, right. but he does a great job of unpacking the biases, the um, the lack of, uh, de of uh, de-escalation, is that the right term? Uh, just so many mistakes. Oh my goodness. And it ended right. with this lady taking her life. Right. Uh, is Gladwell, is, is it, Gladwell to me, um, is one of America's best storytellers. No, with, he's, the he's, best. He's up there with Mark Twain and, um, and Ken Burns to me and others, you know, but those, but they, they, those who often get lauded as great story. Ken Burns is an amazing storyteller. Mark Twain's an amazing storyteller. Malcolm Gladwell is, is up there in that category. Um, and he gets often, mis, uh, um, he gets often, I think misunderstood as being like somewhat simplistic because he, he, he takes these wide ranging areas and makes it accessible. And he has said, yeah, like I'm, I'm, I'm glossing over things. I'm, I'm, you know, you, if you want to go deeper, certainly do. But he brings a lot of things to the forefront to give us our first access to things in a way that we can digest and understand. And then you go deeper if, you, if it's interest, of interest to you. But I think that he gets thought of as not a very deep person because his podcasts are, for lack of a better, a little bit surfacy. But that's on purpose. And, and, and when I say they're surfacy, it doesn't mean they're not impactful or meaningful but I think they're good entry points into deeper topics. Mm. Yeah, he, him and, and his writing, I've read every one of his books from David to Goliath, um, uh, Tipping Point. I mean, uh, yeah. maybe it's, you know, in the first episode, episode five that we had, we talked about the difference between Dan Paff and Boo Shexnader for me. And I said, Dan was just, he's just too smart for me. I'm, you know, I'm a kid from Alabama. Uh, and I was like, Boo, for some reason, like he takes these high level concepts and he, he teaches, like I can understand them. Malcolm is that. I need him to be a little surfacey talking mm. about these deep subjects because that's the only way I'm going to build. I don't. I'm sorry, man. It's I can gonna, see that. I can see yeah. that. Well, thank, thank you. I don't know. Was that a? I don't know. I don't feel like that was a compliment, Kevo. When you said no, I no, I can see that, that. That's a good analogy. Like, yeah, it was like blue Malcolm Gladwell, like birds of a feather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, hey, Kaba, thank you so much for that conversation. You know, uh, again, uh, the influence you have, and as a father, you know, I. I for people that are connected with me through social media, uh, if they were ever to do an audit of my social media, you know, they're most of them are track coaches because I, I, first of all, that's who I know and that's who I love. Uh, but, you know, track coaches have mainly kind of two kinds of posts on social media. One is my kid did X, Y, and Z or something like that. You know, my athlete broke a record. We're going to this track meet, et cetera. And those are great, right? I mean, that's 
That's our business. That's what we're in. That's what we do. And then the other, uh, sometimes less uh, common social media post will be uh, my kid or my uh, the anniversary with my wife or a vacation, things like that. You know, on the personal right. level. And I bet you, I am. I, I'm. I might be exaggerating a little bit, but I bet you, I'm ten to one that I will. And I purposely go to heart that I love, not just the not just the thumbs up. I go to the heart. Uh, that I love when I see for you specifically, Kaba, pictures of you and Malcolm, pictures of you, you know, the other day, the video, I don't know, was that, that, that wasn't Leah's first steps, was it? Uh, no, they weren't very first, but they were like next day. Okay, yeah, yeah, I, was, I, was, I thought that, you know, things like that, that's <coughs> because I care so much about the person who became a track coach, not mm. just the track coach. I just love that so much. And so when you do things of your heart from when you share your kids, you share your fatherhood, you show your loves of uh, your interest outside of track, you know, the Star Wars and things like that, which I love, of course, uh, in that video on May 28th, you know, that to me is, that's the person that is Kava Tolbert, not Coach Tolbert. And to me, that is so much more impactful. You have a great positive impact on athletes, specifically 18 to 22 year olds, but your impact as a person is much, much greater and wider. Uh, and much like I talked about earlier about how a Dan and a boo looked at you and a Jimmy V when you were doing that mentorship, like, like proud, like, Hey, these guys are spreading the word to even more people than we could. It's the same, you know, you are impacting 18 to 22 year olds. They're going to be fathers and mothers one day, they're going to remember lessons that you, the person, taught them and make this world better. We are moving forward. I think we're moving forward slowly. I, I wish we would just speed the F up sometimes to be <laughs> to, to continue the, 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 the changes that we need. Uh, but it's, it's hopeful that when people like you and many, many others that we're not naming right here, but we're, we're focused on you, uh, continue to be the open-hearted big person that you are and leading by example and by words, that is how we're going to continue to get better. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, man. I, um, Thank you. This was better than I could have imagined. <laughs> I just love Thank your story. Thank you for having me. It's oh, been a man. pleasure. I love your story. I love your journey. Uh, I, I won't hold you to a part three, 10 years down the road. <laughs> Who knows what podcast and such look like. But I am super excited. You know, we're friends outside of business as well. Right. I'll always be rooting for you and watching you as you continue in your fatherhood, uh, your husband, uh, hus husbandry, is that how you refer to it. Uh, and obviously as your coaching, man, you're doing a great job. I love you to death. And I can't say thank you enough. Thank you. Okay, but that's Kaba Tobert, everybody. Check them out on social media. You will not You'll, you'll be better for it. Let me tell you, just go and check them out. Thank you, Kayla. Cool. Well, that's a wrap, ladies and gentlemen. If you like what you heard, give us a rating and review on iTunes and hit that subscribe button. As well, we encourage you to connect with others and share the podcast on your social media. Looking forward to next time when we connect you with another great track and field connection. Bye, guys.